Hey there, podcast listeners. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the senior pastor at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. And today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. John Dominic Crossan, who's going to be speaking uh, in just a little over a week at our congregation. But we wanted to carve out some time to get to know him a little bit better and talk through some of his own uh, life and faith journey and research interests uh, as we prepare for that lecture. Don, would you like to say hi to our listeners? Hello to everyone. And yes, you're calling me by my right name, my middle name, Dominic. And I'll tell you the story behind that as a way of introducing myself. Please. My, my real name is John Cross, and that's what's on my passport, and that's what's on my driving license, TSA, <laughs> in the days when you used to use the TSA, John Cross. But what happened was in 1950, I was 16 years of age, and I entered the Roman Catholic monastery. When you enter a monastery, as in the Bible, when you get a new vocation, they wipe out your past to give you only a future. So your old name goes, and I became Brother Dominic. It was a 13th century order. And then eventually Father Dominic. So my identity for the 19 years when I was in the monastery was Dominic. Mm. Now, it has no legal standing. So when I <laughs> left the monastery... <laughs> I finally decided after 19 years that celibacy was vastly overrated, actually. <laughs> so I left the monastery for the university and marriage, but I wanted to keep everything else except <laughs> celibacy. So I <laughs> took Dominic in the middle, but mm. it has no legal standing. So uh, my, my government knows me as John and my God knows me as Dominic. And for the last few years, they have not been on speaking terms. Oh, so <laughs> there's no confusion. But anyone who knows me knows me as Dominic or Dom. That's the reason, because that's my monastic name. So I have to keep John Dominic Cross and the sound so pretentious. Keep both <laughs> names so nobody gets confused. Anyway, that's the story behind it. I, I love that. I didn't know that. And so thank you so much for sharing. For, for folks who are listening in who may not know you, I'll, I'll just share briefly. Dom is Professor Emeritus of DePaul University, is one of the foremost historical Jesus scholars of our time, is the author of several best-selling books. Uh, that we, We've listed them on our website, uh, but the one that you'll be speaking about uh, in just a couple of weeks is uh, Resurrecting Easter in which uh, Dom talks about um, the, the ways in which the Eastern and Western churches have have understood resurre the resurrection of Jesus and mm -hmm. uh, throughout the ages. And we're we'll be delighted to welcome you uh, for that lecture as part of our speaker series. That's going to be March 5th, uh, Saturday, from 3 to 4.30 p.m. And we'll be delighted to welcome you there, there for that. Dom, I'm wondering if you can tell us just a little bit about your background and where you're coming from. Um, I, I know that you're a native of Ireland. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can probably tell from my, my accent. Yeah, I came to this country actually in 1951 on the Queen Mary when it used to, wow. used to move in those days. That was rather nice. But I, I had joined my religious order in Ireland. The, the, in plain language, they had a recruiting station in Ireland. So I came here, then they brought me here, in other words. And the interesting thing you should know is when I came here, I came to be a monk and a priest and to do what I was told. I thought I was going to be a missionary in Africa, for example. That's what had excited me as a 15-year-old in Ireland. Wow. 
Then when they got me here, they said, wait a minute, you have had five years of Greek and five years of Latin, which I had. I mean, I did, wasn't impressed by that. That's what I was at a classical boarding school and that's what everyone had. So what? Right. Every day for five years. So they said, well, wait a minute, you're not going to be a missionary in Africa. You're going to be a professor, whatever. So in one sense, that determined my whole future. They sent me on to get a doctorate in Ireland and then for two years to Rome to specialize postdoctoral in exegesis, which was heavenly, 59. Mm. The years were 59 to 61 in Rome. Europe was just back on its feet and you could go everywhere. Wow. Then again, two more years in uh, Jerusalem, 65 to 67. That meant I was in the old city. That meant I was in Jordan <laughs> before the war, for the six day war or three hour work, three hour right. war, however you figured it out. So everything was determined by that. Then I loved what was happening. I loved. Uh, but as a priest, I was a little bit caught between, let me put it my way. I wanted to be in research and development. They wanted mm. to be in publicity and public relations. <laughs> so this is our position. Use your expertise in the Bible to defend it. Right. And that worked kind of until 68 when the Pope came out with Humana Vitae condemning all forms of birth control except mm -hmm. rhythm or abstinence. And I said, you know, well, I was invited to be on uh, PBR, uh, National Public Radio Television, actually in Chicago, with a medical doctor, let's say a real doctor. And he said there was no problem. And I said the only problem was the Pope was wrong, which didn't go over too well. So when the dust settled, the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago was still the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago. And I was an ex priest and an ex monk. Oh my gosh. And I went to teach very happily, very, very happily at DePaul University and to go on with my own research. So in one sense, that's when I started interest in the historical Jesus. And I can tell you when it happened. It happened in 1960 when mm. I was still a priest and was at Oberammergau and watched the Passion Play. In 1960, mm. it was the second time. Obviously, it wasn't on in 1940. There was more dangerous things going on in Germany. Right. And 1950 was the first time after the war with Adenauer and Eisenhower there. And then 1960 was, you know, the same show that Hitler had seen in 1930 and 1934, before and after he was chancellor. And what struck me, I mean, I didn't know the story. <laughs> I knew how it ended. There was no surprises. But what struck me when I saw it as theater, hmm which had never struck me when I read it as text. It was like mm. in the morning at nine o'clock when you open the hall was filled and stage was filled, I mean, with people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna for Jesus. Then after lunch, when you get back in around three o'clock, they're all shouting, crucify him. Mm. Nowhere did it explain to me what happened during lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it didn't make sense to me. Now, of course, that's... You could, you can read the account and it still doesn't make sense. Well, they changed. how did the people change? Why did the people change? So that was my first interest in the historical Jesus. And it was also linked very closely. It was 1960, remember, with anti-Judaism, mm -hmm. especially in that presentation, which hadn't changed since 1930, as I said before. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could see it much more in the way the music was played, in who wore what what clothes, and Caiaphas's crown being far higher than than the pilot who didn't even have a crown. You, you know, you watch this, and it you got different vibes that you got when you read it, even. So that was what started. Now I don't want to hint for a second that I saw the future. I was just interested in the historical Jesus. And now I was at a university and I had to have a research project. This is it. So that started really, the germ was 19, let me say the conception was in 1960, but the birth was probably in 69 when I went to Nepal. Wow, that's wonderful. And you were at DePaul, we were talking a little bit before we hit record until about 1995. 95, when... exactly. I love DePaul. I really mm-hmm. loved it. Uh, I was controversial, but they had strong nerves. And as far as they were concerned, if you were saying what you believed as a scholar, that's what, mm-hmm. that was your job. Good for that. I loved DePaul. I never wanted to leave it. Any hints I got from anyone else that might be interested in me. I said, don't waste your time and money. I will probably not move. <laughs> so I won't waste your <laughs> time. So I loved it because I love teaching undergraduates because quite frankly, teaching undergraduates is much more performance than preparation. You're teaching very often the same course, but you've got 40 students and you're on your feet and it's high mm-hmm. performance especially if a large group of them are theater students as they are at DePaul and they're judging you not on your content at all, <laughs> but on your performance, literally. So I love that. And that gave me huge time to do my own research. So I love that combination. And, and, and uh, it, it sounds like it was because you had started writing on the historical Jesus become well-known in the, in the broader world beyond sort of academia that you were receiving so many uh, requests to speak in churches that it really came down to, you know, where, where's the best use of your time and energy? Yes. Um, I should have mentioned that in, I'd been working towards a big book on Jesus basically. mm -hmm. And in 1991, I wrote the historical Jesus the life of a Mediterranean Jewish peasant, you know, $30 and about 500 pages. And it really was not, was not designed for normal human beings. <laughs> <laughs> I was presuming an academic audience. In fact, right. what I really wanted to do was raise the question of method. How did you do this? How did you decide right. in your database? Right. That was the whole thing. I thought I was going to have a great big discussion on method with my peers in Peter Steinfeld slapped it and John Meyer's book on the front page of the New York Times for Christmas, for the Christmas story of 1991. And that's what happened. All of a sudden, this book went through the roof. And publishing firms, I was working with Har- with, uh, with uh, Harper Collins. Um, they weren't Harper Collins then, they were Harper and Roe, but anyway. Publishers began to realize there's something here. There's this historical Jesus. What, 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 what's going on here? Mm-hmm. It really started things that I had no idea about. So, I mean, in terms of publicity. So I had to start realizing I'm really talking to another audience. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a more important audience. So in 95, that's four years later, I had been getting so many invitations to churches. 
And I was quite used, you know, as an academic, get invited to another university, and you know, that's pro forma, but not to churches and not to come see on Friday night, one lecture, three lectures on Saturday, preach on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Now, I wasn't being invited to Roman Catholic churches, to be fair, <laughs> but pretty much everything else across the board. Right. Very conservative, maybe Southern Baptists, no, unless I was being brought in to establish their conviction that I shouldn't have been brought in (laughs) 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 to establish the horror parameter as it were. But in general, this was not something I had planned. It really wasn't. So by 95, something had to give. I couldn't teach undergraduates. I was teaching Tuesday and Thursday, you know, three courses. Right. And in fact, when Harper after the historical Jesus came out, they said, we want to send you on a book tour. And I said, well, I can't go on a book tour. I'm teaching. I have to be there on Tuesday and Thursday. So the big question was, could I leave, say, on a Tuesday night and maybe miss one Thursday? You know, we were we were dancing around my undergraduate teaching, which, of course, we, we had to. I couldn't just take off. Right. So that started something, though. I realized there was a huge audience in the churches to ask serious questions and sort of the historical Jesus was really an avenue into everything. We were not positively not just talking about history. Mm. We weren't. Nowhere, my own doctorate, for example, was in theology because the Roman Catholic tradition was you got theology first before you got scripture, which isn't a bad idea, by the way. Mm. And fascinating. It's I liked it very much because with the Jesus Seminar, I sometimes thought some of my colleagues were expert historians, but really weren't at home with theology, with metaphor, with symbol, with parable, were less at home with that than they were with history. So I was quite happy with that. So I was quite aware that I can talk to you about history, but I know the theological implications. You know, one of my, when I was a faculty member, one of our jokes was that, you know, Bible scholars don't do theology and theologians don't need the Bible. (laughs) It sounds like you were able to bridge the gap there. I I really was, because I was always aware of the theological implications, even if I was talking to somebody or he wanted to talk history. And the reason, of course, was because Jesus and Paul were theologians, I mean, that, if yeah, Jesus had been simply talking about history, then I wouldn't, shouldn't get into theology. Hmm. But he's talking about God's rule on earth. That's not history. That's theology. It may be forming history. It may apply to history. It may determine history. But that's theology. And if you hmm. can't handle that, don't handle Jesus. You might as well be going to talk about Hippocrates and say, well, I don't know anything about medicine. Well, stay away from him because that's who he is. So I was always aware of the theological relevance of this mm. and interested in it, not, not just aware of it. I thought that's why it was worth doing the history. Right. But I, I love that. I, I do find some irony in that you, you know, you um, came up through the Catholic Church were uh, in a monastic order, and you didn't end up becoming a missionary to Africa. You ended up becoming a missionary of sorts to Protestant churches in America. <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> was, well, if I try to imagine it, the first time I was 15, I was at a boarding school, as I told you. And by the way, not, don't take elite boarding schools. This is, I was in Donegal, the poorest part mm-hmm. of Ireland. 
And the small towns, small, smaller than you can imagine, crossroads almost, they couldn't afford a high school, a decent high school. So you had one central boarding school to which everyone went from Donegal. Mm-hmm. If you happened to live in that town, it was Letterkenny, you'd, you'd be a day boy, you wouldn't be. So it's, don't think of going to a boarding school as elite, but right. the education I got there was left over by the receding tide of the British Empire. We had the same education that I would have got at Eton or anywhere in the best schools, best elite boarding schools of England because it was left over by them. So Ireland just took over the education system. That's why I had five years of Greek and five years of Latin. So in one sense, things were determining my life without me really being aware of it. So in 95, when I started getting these invitations to churches, I figured I had to stop. I couldn't keep teaching in every weekend. So by 95, I was what? I was 61. I took early retirement from DePaul. And then really for the next 25 years until COVID, mm-hmm. have been really in churches pretty much, I would say the average was about 25, maybe a year, weekend wow. or so. Right. But, you know, they weren't nicely spaced out. That sounds lovely. That's two a month. Yeah, not really. Uh, I would every weekend in Lent, maybe all six right. weeks. <laughs> I, I I consider myself part of the penitential season of Lent. Right. You know? When everyone wants to repent, they call yeah. you. <laughs> Let's bring in cross and to make us suffer. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I loved it. I loved it because I'm talking now to adults mm-hmm. who wanted to hear, and I'd been teaching required courses to undergraduates who didn't. Right, right. <laughs> you know, undergraduates want to get through and get out. Right. Okay, we have to take this course, so we'll take this course. And please don't make it, you know, too dull. But I never felt that, you know, they were all eager, hands up all the time. Right. <laughs> That's not reality. Yeah. <laughs> I have much more experience teaching graduate students than undergrads, but I, I was quickly disillusioned at the uh, glamour of teaching college students. I love I loved them, but yeah, it was a challenge every every week. Yeah, DePaul, we we did not have a graduate school. We for a while we tried a, an MA. When I when I went there, actually, we were working with an MA, but that was with the Presbyterian Seminary that was next door to us at that time. So McCormick. So I was basically all my life I've been teaching undergraduates. Yeah. I know I know the ages eighteen to twenty two, and sixty five to eighty five, <laughs> <laughs> really well. <laughs> You're talking to someone right in the middle of that. So, <laughs> Dom, I I can't get. I can't shake the sense that in some ways uh, it's as if the world is your parish, you know, through teaching and churches, but also through the books that you write, uh, you, you are able to reach a broader audience uh, with something that I think is rather profound and does shape the ways in which we as Christians or people who strive to follow Christ uh, engage with the world. And it, you know, maybe as, more relevant now than ever. So I do wonder if, so you, the historical Jesus is one of your ma- major themes or focal points of your research. Um, some people that are listening might not know that phrase, the historical Jesus. Could you just give us like a sort of like a quick elevator um, speech on what it means to be yeah. a student or a scholar of the historical Jesus? 
first of all, I'm not using the term at all polemically against anything else. Because sure. sometimes it's used, let's get rid of these gospels and all that. We'll just get to the historical Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's not going to work because, as I said, the historical Jesus is making a theological claim about the God's rule on earth. So we, right. we don't get away from it that easy. And besides, the Gospels are openly and honestly what they claim to be, good news. Mm-hmm. And anyone knows that good news is a viewpoint. Mm. If, I, if I said politically something, I won't even risk one. There's good news about the president. Then that would depend on clearly my viewpoint. It might be somehow true, but I, so a gospel is a shout out for Jesus, a confessional shout out for Jesus. That's yeah, what we got right. for them. It's the gospel according to, I mean, mm. it even honestly says that it's not, this is Matthew, this is the gospel, the gospel, accord- there's only one gospel, Jesus, mm. only one gospel. There's not four gospels. We, mm. you know, we say that just shorthand. There's the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, if you will. There's only one Jesus. So the historical Jesus asked this question. If you had been there at the time, if you even were a Pilate who's, all, who's against him, or a Peter or a Mary who's for him, what would you see? Hmm. Tell me what's going on. If you say, I believe he's the Christ, fine, fine, fine. I, that's fine, but Why? Because this person over here doesn't think he's the Christ, and this person farther off thinks he should be crucified. So could you tell me if you were a journalist, open, honest, trying to report, I'm here in Judea, I'm, I'm working for the Judean Times, and I have to report why this man, some people want to worship him and some people want to crucify him. What's going on? I have to be able to tell both sides. So it, it's not saying that you don't care about the, the, the gospel because you have to work with the gospels. But in a way, you have four vectors or maybe five with Paul. And you're trying to see, we are dealing with a human being. Mm-hmm. Now, there were theologians that's, that kind of said, can't do that, can't be done, can't be done. And I want to say, well, why in all the world this is the only human being? Is it, do you think he's a human being, first of all? Well, yeah, we have to admit that. He was human. He was divine too. I'm not saying he's not divine. I'm saying was he human? Yes. Okay. Right. He was human. And of all the millions and billions of human beings, this is the one we know nothing about. Hmm. I said, that simply is negative theology. He is the one with the cloud of unknowing. Hmm. I said, that's not honest. You may have to admit that we can know very little about him. Maybe or we can know enough about him, but we don't know that. Don't tell me I can't know about the historical Jesus before I even begin the investigation. Mm. That's dishonest. I may end up by saying, well, I know Mark, I know Matt, I really can't get there. Fine. That's a conclusion, not a presumption. So what you want to know is basically what would you have seen if you were there? And then you should be able to go from that and say, this is the way Mark interprets this way. Paul interprets them, Mark interprets them, different time, different people, different audience. And you can begin to see, okay, so basically the challenge of Jesus is not just knowing the history, because once you know the history, you get, it's like, um, let me make a jump. It's like knowing the history of Martin Luther King is not just, well, that's very interesting. He had those nice ideas. Yeah, and he made nice speeches. 
and he wrote letters from jails. How interesting. If you kind of have a conscience, you know it is challenging you to make a reaction, to make a response, mm -hmm. because it's not just out there minding its own business. Right. It's making certain claims that are relevant to you. So the more I got the historical Jesus straight in my own mind, the clearer I could see that this Jesus, this historical figure, made certain uh, fairly strong universal claims. You could certainly say, <laughs> rubbish. I don't believe a word of it, of course. Right. You could also say, very, very dangerous. So at least you might have to respect Pilate's judgment that at least this, this guy, let us say, is making dangerous claims. Mm. The Romans really didn't crucify people for entertainment. Well, they did it for entertainment, but usually they had a reason. Had a reason. Yes. This person rather right. than that person. So right. even if I wanted to look at Pilate, I mean, I could, I could tell simply from history alone, looking at Pilate, the Roman judgment for violent resistance was you crucify the leader and as many of the top lieutenants as you can get in a nice role so everyone gets the idea. Okay, this is, this is a band of rebels. If you're dealing with a non-violent resistor or rebel, you crucify the leader and that should take care of it. Don't waste mm. your time. Don't waste your time rounding up the followers. Eh. <laughs> Once you get the leader, they'll be gone. The Romans called it people who are seditious and create tumults among the people. That was their term in civil law for people like Jesus, who didn't mm -hmm. come at you with a sword or a dagger, who just were causing disturbances, protesters, we might call them, uh, demonstrators, we might call them. Not violent, but still disturbing the peace, the Romans would have said. Right. Right. So just from history alone, if I only had Pilate, and I have him, of course, in Josephus and Tacitus, I would know the Romans crucified Jesus, but didn't bother to round up any of his closest followers. Hmm. Ah, in their judgment, this is nonviolent resistance. Now, if I only had Josephus and Tacitus, that would be my presumption. Mm -hmm. They both say he started a movement over there in Judea. We crucified him for it. Okay, that couldn't have been a, <laughs> a violent movement. There would have been a lot more crosses. So you crucified the leader. And then you have to explain to me then why it didn't work. And Josephus says, well, those who loved him continue to love him. And Tacitus, who's a complete snob, says, well, it was like an infection. <laughs> you know, it was rotten and it infected everyone and everything bad comes to Rome eventually. But both of them, <laughs> what I find precious is both of them tell us by the end of the first century, beginning of the second, there was a movement. We crucified the founder. Mm. Somehow it didn't work. And we're stuck with them now. They're called Christians. Mm-hmm. So I, I find I could get huge material from history alone. And then when I went into the gospel, I found that's what Jesus was doing. That made sense to me. And all the theology that then envelops Jesus is fine. That's a theological interpretation. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Right, right. It, you know, as you're talking, you, you mentioned method earlier with your Jesus book in the early 90s. Uh, and for part of this is the question of sources, like what sources are we looking at for the life of Jesus? What data do we have? And, you know, I think a lot of us just think, oh, well, obviously Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but then you add Paul, you add the context of, of the Roman empire and first century Judaism. And then you start to add all of these layers of details. And then you, you know, uh, I, I know from reading your writing that then you start to wonder, you know, when you have two ideas in conflict, how do we know which, you know, which carries more weight and so forth and so forth. But what, one, one thing, oh, go ahead. One of the things that I did methodologically, of course you can't let on, you don't know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I, I tried to think to myself, okay, now, it, what is the thickest description I could give of Antipas's Galilee? Hmm. without going into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, I, I'm not letting on, it's almost impossible to do that, but let's imagine what everything do we know about Antipas's Galilee before Jesus arrives, as it were. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when Jesus arrives, for example, I, I jumped, put it the other way around. Does it make sense that everyone who's interested in Jesus seems to be coming not from Nazareth, but from the fishing villages especially in the northwest quadrant of the Sea of right. Galilee in the 20s. Isn't that weird? Wouldn't you think it'd be around Gala, around um, Nazareth? Right. What's, what's he doing over there? And then, of course, when you, leave, when you leave that aside, as it were, and look at Antipas, and you realize he's moved his headquarters, his capital city, from inland Sepphoris to lakeside Tiberias, mm-hmm. and it strikes like a light. He's commercializing the lake. He's getting with the Roman system, which is Mediterranean globalization. That's what Rome was doing. Mediterranean globalization. They weren't just grabbing all these little countries. They were making a nice pan-Mediterranean globalization. And Antipas, in his own little way, by commercializing the lake, so the fishes don't go to the locals, but go, say, all the way to Tyre, you know, for the world market, for the, the globalization market. He's commercializing Galilee. He's co- now, that's why it's especially fisher villages like right. Mary's Magdala. Oh, that makes sense. So when Jesus comes with this lovely message that they've been hearing for 500 years about God's rule on earth, and it's so lovely, but all of a sudden it has a local habitation and a name. As Shakespeare would say, you mean that this, that what God's will and God's rule is not that Antipas takes over the lake and dumps all of us out of work. That's not the will of God. Mm. Not. Oh, now, wait a minute. It was much better talking about justice and righteousness and all up there in heaven. You're now got a movement called Occupy the Lake. (laughs) 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 Or, you know, Fishers matter, right? You've given you've given uh, all of a sudden Hmm. down here on earth, and people are listening. They've they've been hearing about God's uh, rule and all the rest of it for five hundred years at least, (laughs) and then bringing the Torah for five hundred years before that. But if you don't, you don't get traction unless Hmm. there's something that does it. Now we know that too well, and all sorts of things. 
Traction may be a tragedy, but something that suddenly people know, that's what it means. I see how it applies to my life. So mm-hmm. I want to start with Jesus. Uh, for, I want to start with Antipas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then I can get to John the Baptist. Then I can get to Jesus. And all of a sudden, I see why it works. I know what they're saying, but, you know, you could say Amos had said something like that. So did Isaiah. What what was the the catalyst of that time and place that mm-hmm. made it click? So right. people were listening and people were following. So my method is almost, if you can, to bracket the biblical data you're interested in for a moment and get as thick a description you can of the time and place you're dealing with. Right. And then with that, you can use it almost like a discriminant. So I think that makes sense of Jesus speaking in parables. I don't think he was battering these people with, with huge gobs of scripture. <laughs> I think that probably comes from later layers. But it, it lets you have a criterion of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I've been to, uh, I've been fortunate to travel to the Sea of Galilee a couple of times. And one of the things that struck me was when you're standing in Capernaum or Magdala or wherever, you can see the city of Tiberias right across the way. And it was really a powerful image for me. You know, if you just read it sort of in the Bible, you're like, oh, yeah, this is a big lake. Uh, You know, they're just kind of here and there and everywhere. But when you're there, you're like, wow, they're looking at this. Roman imperial center for taxation uh, and uh, and uh, Romanization, and they they probably can feel it in their pocketbooks what that is doing to their fishing industry, uh, and, and it, it, it yeah. for me it, it put such a, um, a tangible expression on what Jesus was doing in that area. You, well, you've got it, Art. I mean, he you, you have to think why would Antipas change his capital? Now you really mm-hmm. want to infuriate everyone change your capital. Because uh, if, I'm a, if I'm a high aristocrat in his government, what am I going to do with my used villa? <laughs> you know, 20 miles to the east, I, I have to move over. Why would, he, why would he do that and infuriate everyone unless for a reason? So mm-hmm. asking why did he change his capital and why did he change it there are obvious historical questions. And the only answer I know of is he wants to control the commercialization of the lake. Mm-hmm. That's right. the only answer I have. And then it does work with me when I figure, okay, that's going to explain why we're such fishers and why Mary of Magdala is such an important disciple of Jesus. She, this is the biggest fishing village on the lake and he's plunked <laughs> it right down beside it. So if, when I put this in the context of Mediterranean globalization, it doesn't create a Jesus. It creates traction for a Jesus. Hmm. You know, you know what I mean by that? Yeah. I mean, there were other revolutionaries or um, radicals, maybe, I don't know if that's too strong a word, but that, you know, Rome squashed them, you know, in the centuries around Jesus. Why did Jesus happen and why did he stick? That's what I hear you saying. That's right. And then the second question you ask, you have to ask is granted he's doing this in Galilee. Why does he go to Jerusalem? 
Did he go every Passover? I doubt if he did, by the way. That's that's very expensive and two weeks off don't, work. Anyway. Don't break this Gospel of John scholar's heart. <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> well, you know, then you have two questions. If he didn't go every year, why did he go this year? Mm. If he mm. did go regularly, what happened this year that never happened any other year? So you, you get the question either way. You really do. Mm. If Jesus went regularly, however you want to count that, what happened this year? Mm. Why, did, why would he not go crucify any other year? Mm. The situation, as far as we know, was always tinderbox in Jerusalem. Sure. That's why two huge riots were there. One in, what was it, six, I think, six CE, and the other in the 50s sometime. Dangerous thousands died because of huge number of people in a compressed space, and they're celebrating freedom from Egyptian bondage under Roman bondage. So all it right. takes is somebody to shout, why are we doing this? I'm not going to take this anymore. And you have a riot. <laughs> and people get trampled. Even. So you'd have, you still have to ask that question. And it's a movement. And of course, taking it to Jerusalem out of the small village of the Galilee means that you have it in the capital city and it's mm. a pilgrim city. So it's if you wanted to go out, that's what you have to do. With all due respect, if Jesus had been crucified or executed, let me put it that way, as John was by Antipas in Galilee, I am not going to presume that Christianity would be what mm. we thought. It could have died out during the war of 66 to 74 in the hills of Galilee. But this is what happened. So when you look at it historically, my principle is, Good history, no, bad history will give you bad theology. Mm. Good history can give you good theology, can, at least. Amen. Can. But bad history, you're doomed. <laughs> you're not going to get good theology out of bad history. Right. So, so Jesus, if I'm hearing you correctly, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to get on the map. Uh, and and perhaps to to plant seeds that will then be carried with these pilgrims back to their homelands when they leave the Passover festival, um, if if I'm hearing you correctly. Yes, I I I'm going to not read Jesus' mind, but interpret his actions. Mm -hmm. And I think by his actions, now here's what I think happened. I think relatives of Jesus. I think Mary and Mary and Martha and Lazarus were relatives of Jesus, not just friends. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not at all surprising because, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 150s BCE under the Hasmoneans, lots, lots, I think there was exported Judeans into Galilee. So there must have been close relationships between Judea and Galilee nice. in the next 200 years. So I think Jesus's relatives and our Judean followers said, let me imagine them saying it a little unkindly. Will you get out of those hick towns in Galilee? And if you're serious about this rule of God like we are, take it up here to the capital city and come at Passover. Come at Passover so it'll go out from everyone here. And don't worry. Here's what I'm very important. We can protect you. Oh. Here's what we will do. No, we're not inviting you up here to get killed. It's dangerous, we know, of course. Mm. But during the day, we have crowds of supporters who will protect you. Mm. You can find that in Mar 
in mm-hmm. Mark very clearly. And at night, do not stay in the city. Out of the city to Bethany every night. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes absolute sense to me of somebody who's not trying to get killed, but mm-hmm. trying to do something that's very dangerous. Make no mistake about it. But can be protected, as Mark says again and again, that the Jewish high priests want to have him executed, and you don't have to demonize them either. They're doing quite right. That was their job to mediate between the Romans and their own people. And Jesus was dangerous. And they knew that. Of course, he was dangerous. So we protect you during the day. And at night, get out of the city. Yep, there's a full moon. Even even that, though, there's dark streets. Get to Bethany, around the Mount of Olives every night. Come back in the morning. Everything that I see there is, we can protect you. Mm-hmm. You can get mm-hmm. away with so Jesus does not go up to Galilee, up to sorry, to Judea, to get himself executed. Hmm. And even common sense would tell you that it didn't right. take a week to get yourself executed. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Pilate was up there with an extra um, cohort. That's about six hundred extra troops, mm-hmm. just in case anything would happen. And right. I think probably the rule for Passover is don't even cough too loud. Right. They're on Zero. they're on the lookout. Zero toleration. It's right. It's it's, it's absolutely dangerous. The, the whole church, excuse me, church, the whole temple is filled with people. Filled. And up there on the Antonio, they can see not legionary troops, but pagan troops looking mm-hmm. down at them. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's a recipe for disaster. And especially when your big celebration is freedom from imperial bondage in Egypt. Right. So I can understand. I don't have to make a monster out of pilot. Zero toleration. And if it happens to anyone, that there be a warning. So I can see what they're doing to Jesus. And I don't have to say he went up there to get himself vicariously killed in atonement. Mm-hmm. I don't see him doing that. Mm-hmm. Nor do I see him going up in the more Roman Catholic tradition to give us a model for intolerable suffering, even though, mm-hmm. yes, of course, crucifixion. But the Romans really did not think of crucifixion as we might as intolerable suffering. They thought of it as actually annihilating you, wiping you off the map because mm-hmm. they, they figured there'd be nothing left when they were finished with you. So they did not compute suffering the way we did. It was a public demonstration of state terrorism. That's what crucifixion was. Don't do what this person did or you'll end like this person has. That's why it was public. And we're going to stick a placard above your head too so that everyone knows exactly what you did. did. And they better not do that. That's right. And the crosses, the uprights were probably permanently in place on the Mm -hmm. main road leading into town, which would probably be from the north. Mm-hmm. So the main road would probably have the execution site, permanent uh, uprights, and then you'd carry your own cross. Right? So all of it makes sense. And again, I want to insist, Roman civil law, we actually have it in civil law rescripts from the 200s. It goes something like this. The person who is seditious or who creates a tumult among the people 
shall according to his rank either be crucified, thrown to the beasts, or exported to an island. Hmm. <laughs> so if you happen to be a big shot, you just get an island. But right. that's Roman <laughs> that civil. Not too bad. <laughs> it's, not, it's not criminal law. There's no Roman criminal law. If you're a criminal, we kill you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, civil law has to explain what about people who cause tumults or riot, not riots, but sedition. So everything we know about Jesus is that he was executed because he lived and practiced nonviolent resistance to Rome. Not nonviolence, not pacifism, nonviolent mm-hmm. resistance to Rome. Well, that, I think that's great. I, I want to maybe follow up on that thought. It, you know, it sounds like Jesus is so political, right? I mean, we tend to think of Jesus as, you know, in theological terms or religious terms. I know from my own research that, uh, which focuses on Roman, the Roman imperial context of the New Testament, but it cer- certainly it, there were political implications for what, for what he did and taught. You keep mentioning the rule of God, which some of our uh, listeners may know better as the kingdom of God, yeah. mm-hmm. or maybe even the empire of God. Yeah. Uh, so w- maybe I can just sort of ask you point blank, what was Jesus trying to do in his ministry and career? And of course, that's absolutely in the tradition of, if you go back to Daniel chapters two and chapter seven, the empires come and go and the rule of empire is judged by God and the rule of God is to take its place. Now, the rule of God sounds lovely, but throughout the Torah and the prophets, the rule of God is absolutely clear. It's called justice. That means that everyone gets enough. Doesn't oh, wow. mean everyone gets exactly the same. It's it's based on the experience of the household, where everyone gets enough. Hmm. So the model of the household, of course, is that you don't have half the kids starving and the other half overfed. We would think that would be, you know, unbelievable. A household is everyone gets enough. So they take that experience of the household. Now they may well, since they think patriarchally, they call it the father. But let me talk about the householder. Let me scratch father and talk about the householder. In the same way that we hear son or firstborn, we should hear heir, H-E-I-R, heir. But anyway, the householder, so the well-run household takes care of the fields, takes care of the animals, the draft animals, takes care of the kids, the servants, everything else. That's a well-run household. Now, that's their great metaphor the great mega metaphor for the world. Ah, God is the householder of the world house. So God is concerned about the land, the fields, the animals, the human beings. And God wants everyone to get a fair share. That's what they mean throughout the Bible when they talk about justice, their justice and righteousness. To be just is to get, is to get everyone has a fair share. That's, mm. that's very simple. And how do you know if everyone's getting a fair share? Very simple. Ask everyone. Hmm. Now, if you ask the 1%, is everyone getting a fair share? Of course. Right. And Isaiah knew about the 1% because he said, woe to you who, let me think, woe to you who add field to field and house to house until you live alone in the midst of the land. 
that's the definition of the one percent. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Isaiah knew it already. Yeah. So basically, that's the model they had. How everyone gets gets enough. That's God's rule. So it's very very clear in the prophets and in the Torah itself. You can see it on the Sabbath rest. Everyone, including your draft animals, mm. get the day off. So the, the ox and the, the ass. So I love that. The definition in the Bible is absolutely clear. Justice means everyone getting a fair share. Well, and then it, it you know, we pray each week, give us this day our daily bread. Make, make sure that we have enough. And not just us, not just me, myself and I, but we communally, collectively, all of us. And, you know, the trouble is that is, as you said, that's political. They really are not talking charity. The great mm. deal, the great deal that early Christianity made with Constantine, as it were, is let's not talk about justice anymore because that could get us into trouble. Let's talk about charity. Mm. We'll talk about heaven and you run the earth. We'll conduct charity and you handle justice. Because nobody ever really gets crucified for charity. You get canonized. You get canonized for charity. You get crucified for justice. If you Mm. say this is justice, and clearly that's not what the Romans are doing, then you're saying the Romans aren't just. And since they think that Caesar is God, you're talking about God's rule. And Rome would have said, yep, that's us. Yep, you got it. We're, we're creating a just world. They, they would even take over your language. They say, yeah, we're creating a just world. Everyone, everyone in their place, you know, from the top down, it's, everything is just. Right. So Rome would have said, if, if, if a, a Roman aristocrat ever read Paul's epistle to the Romans, not likely, by the way, he wouldn't like the Greek, but anyway, he would say, Justification, yeah, that's our that's our program. We're making the world a just place. Hmm. We elites, we don't we don't steal from one another. Mm-hmm. Augustus doesn't come in and grab my villa because he likes it. No, we're very just. Now you know it's it's a kind of a very much a lateral justice up near the top. <laughs> right. But yeah, that's why they knew that Augustus was better than Caligula. Or, you know, right. Sure, because you know he didn't. He didn't steal your wife or your stuff. So they they would have claimed, well, what do you mean God's rule? We have God's rule. Mm. Caesar is divine. Mm. We have God's rule. So any idea that Jesus is not political is absurd. Now, if you want to define politics as infighting between two parties, no, that's not what Jesus is doing. Right. He isn't. But that's not politics. That's just... <laughs> That's just adult sandbox. Mm-hmm. Like the partisan people. politics that we yeah. get experience in really media is. today. Right. Because I remember when you're, they were saying on nine, the anniversary of 9-11, there'll be no politics today. Mm. <laughs> it makes no sense. There'll be no politics. You can't not have mm. politics. Politics is the ethics of the city, strictly speaking, politics. The ethics right. of the city is, it's, the ethics of living together. It's how we live. How together. we live together. Yep. So you can't turn that off. You can certainly right. turn off uh, political bickering. So we have degenerated politics in a way that would make Aristotle 
turned screaming in his grave mm -hmm. into simply infighting among groups who are primarily concerned with their own careers. Right. D Dom, one of my questions for you was going to be, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the 21st century? We were just talk talking about the first century, but it strikes me as not a hard leap from what you're describing in terms of justice and every get everyone gets enough uh, to how we approach following Jesus today. Uh, I do wonder what you, if you would like to elaborate a little bit. I mean, it's funny. It's almost funny. You know, you're talking about the 1%. It, you know, something, certainly a lot has changed in 20 centuries, but in some, plenty of things have stayed the same too. Uh, the rich get richer and the poor, you know, scrape by. But what, Jesus if someone said, oh, go ahead. No, that's just saying that Jesus is the same with the haves have and the have nots lose. <laughs> you know, right. You want to say, how much you lose? So what, is it, what does it look like? I know that, you know, we both consider ourselves people of faith or followers of Jesus or Christians, whatever name we want to put on it. What does it look like to follow Jesus or follow the vision of Jesus in the 21st century? Um, I have great trouble seeing the difference anymore, to be honest with you. It's not that I'm mm. trying to see the parallels. I've spent so much time in the first century that's, you know, reading all the, of the, the biblical texts, of course, then reading all the other texts you can get your hand on, walking the ruins of the Roman Empire all the way from, from Spain to Syria, everywhere, looking at the artifacts in their museum. And here's, here's what I can't get away from at the moment. They started with an autocrat. They called it the king. They mm. got rid of their dictator and got a republic. Okay. Then they had a civil war and got an empire. Mm. And lo and behold, they lost their republic and ended up with an autocrat. <laughs> now, I'm not even making the term. The, the Greek term for, for um, Augustus was autocratar. It's, it's imperator in Latin, but it's autocratar. Autocratar means power from me, my, uh, my own power. So I, I'm having great difficulty looking at the first century and the 21st century, especially in America, mm. and not seeing that parallelism. That it's not just that you, when you have a republic and get an empire, you tend to lose the republic and get an autocrat, get a dictator or get somebody who wants to be a dictator, or might be a dictator, or try to be a dictator and will try again. Mm. <laughs> so I, I keep looking then, that puts followers of Jesus in the 21st century, almost acutely back in a similar situation. Mm. And it is political. There's no way not. But we, we have to understand, we did make a deal, 300 years, the Roman Empire was pagan. That was our right to be against it, maybe because it was pagan rather than empire. Then we got Constantine, eventually, a Christian empire, at least a century after Constantine. Now you have a Christian empire. Maybe that's all right. Maybe that's good. Maybe, mm. maybe the whole problem with the Old Testament was 
they didn't have a Jewish empire, Babylonian, mm. Syrian. And all, but the New Testament was, we didn't have a Christian empire. So now we can negotiate this. Obviously, Jesus is up in heaven with the angels, and Caesar is now down here on earth with a halo, of course. Right. <laughs> and the soldiers. And we shouldn't start talking about justice anymore, as I said before. So we tended to make a deal with Constantine. Never spelled out. We, we won't shake the political foundations too much. I think that the role of religion, yeah, I'm going to, even going to say the accursed word of organized religion. Mm-hmm. It is organizing against organized Caesar. <laughs> if you ask Paul or Jesus, mm. why are you running around, you know, all the time? Jesus, why don't you settle down at Nazareth? Paul, why don't you get yourself a nice parish at Corinth and, you know, stop traveling? They would have looked at you and said, we're organizing. Mm. Paul would have mm. said, we're we're opposing the Roman Empire, and they're the most highly organized empire we've ever seen. We're organizing to oppose them. I can't do it alone, Paul would say. It's all the churches of Christ that are at Corinth and Ephesus and Thessaloniki, all of them together. We're opposing the Roman Empire as an alternative way of life. Mm. Economic, political, social, religious, everything. It's a a different vision of the world. So I think that's what we're called to. And it is not, it is in Jesus's model. It is nonviolent resistance. Right. Which, which some some followers of Christ today seem to have missed that point. It's really, you'd want to say, why does Jesus say his most famous statement? We all know is love your enemies. Mm. And we tend to focus on love. Well, how could you possibly love? How you, maybe he means like, maybe he means, no, wait a minute. Why does he say enemies? Why does Jesus presume you'll always have enemies to love? Why doesn't he presume that eventually if you're nice people and, you know, smile, you won't have any enemies? He says, love your enemies. Because the normalcy of civilization the normalcy of civilization is based on violence. Mm. That's not an act of faith. That's an act of description on Mm. homo sapiens Mm. since the last 70,000 years, since we, our species, came out of Africa. Mm. 70,000 years, the normalcy of civilization has been violent. To the point that the question is whether we are a survivable species. If you don't mm. believe there's a you know a transcendental <laughs> raft coming to save us. <laughs> I keep we, hoping for that. <laughs> it would be very nice. It would be very nice. Very nice. But the, the evidence the evidence of the tra- trajectory is that we are an endangered species. Mm. And it's self-endangered because nothing else probably could really endanger us. I don't think seriously. Mm, mm-hmm. So that is the, the wider challenge that when I see from a Jesus or a Paul, I don't, 
I don't really see them speaking just to Christians. I really don't. I, I think their vision can be formulated in Christian language that nobody else might use or in biblical language that nobody outside us would use. But I think a Jesus or a Paul are absolutely capable of speaking in the public square and saying, homo sapiens, <laughs> get, get a bit more sapiens <laughs> and a little less homo. Um, look at yourselves. Watch the trajectory of, of, heck, watch the trajectory of the last century alone. Why don't you think violence will keep escalating? It's been doing it. Mm. Why do you think you've never had a weapon you didn't use? Right. Why do you think it's always more powerful than the one before? Why? Our message is to you whether you can save your earth. And I have no problem using words like save and redeem and everything mm. else because I'm talking about the earth yeah. and species upon it. So I see well, this as a much bigger challenge. And as we're talking right now, we're, you know, we're w watching the news updates by the hour from out of the Ukraine. And so, you know, your words ring entirely relevant right now. What, what I hear you inviting, uh, I'll speak personally, Williamsburg Baptist Church, inviting us to be, you know, as we attempt to strive to follow this vision of Jesus, is to be a community uh, that lives out justice and inclusion and love and nonviolence and advocacy uh, would extend to um, ecological justice and uh, in creation care as we we know that uh, ecological devastation uh, is you know unfairly weighs on some more than it does others uh, as we as we do try to live out this alternative vision of the way the world could be um, outside of the way shaped by, you know, Washington, D.C., or the news media, or the, you know, uh, global um, uh, capital and mm -hmm. social media and so forth. Yeah, it really is a, it's an evolutionary challenge. I see it as an evolutionary challenge to the human race, more even mm -hmm. than an ethical challenge or a moral challenge or a theological or religious those are all terms that are fine, but it's an evolutionary challenge. If you, if you were to say to me, somebody were to say to me, well, I'm not really interested in Jesus or Paul or religion or New Testament or anything. I would say, please, could we leave all that aside and let me talk to you about evolution, about human evolution. Mm -hmm. And the, the trajectory, as I said, of the last 70,000 years since we came out of Africa, our species, I mean, Homo sapiens, Mm -hmm. Just look at the trajectory. Just look at it. <laughs> look at this. We're bent towards violence. Now, I would say it's a little, it's like an addiction. Violence is mm. the addiction of choice of our species. Now think mm. of any addiction. If you ask me, I've never smoked in my life because I was in a boarding school and went to a monastery. I didn't have a chance. But if you said to me, <laughs> if, I took, if I smoke today, you mean I'm going to get cancer or something? Of course not. If a 16-year-old said to you, you mean if I smoke today, I'm going to get cancer? No. Then how about tomorrow? No. How about the next? Addictions are cumulative. Mm. That's their problem. Any given one you can justify. Surely, surely it is all right 
for a tiny state like Ukraine to fight against Russia? And the answer can only be yes. Mm. But how does this fit into an evolutionary arc? Mm. So that today I would even, with all due respects to Martin Luther King Jr., want to rephrase his statement. He said that, what was it? The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think that's it. I would say the evolutionary arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Because what I see of, in evolution is it seems to be absolutely a fair, fair to everything. Mm. To everything. Now, much more fair than I want it to be. I don't want it to be so fair to COVID viruses and things. Right. Like no, I, I like my own criteria who, who, of things. But obviously, it is fair. It's, it's fair to us. If we want to go on doing this, it's our business. If we mm. want to make our have planet uninhabitable for us, nothing except our conscience can stop us, I suppose. Maybe we can be stopped by something I can't imagine, like another pandemic or something. But I want us to see that below all this is an evolutionary pull. So you can't get away by by saying, "Well, I'm not. I'm just not into ethics. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's religious stuff. And I'm not into that." Fine, then put your history on the arc of evolution and see how it looks. Because for me, that's where I really am today. I'm, I am where two vectors cross one another. One vector is the biblical vision of a world of justice, which means, again, mm -hmm. where everyone gets a fair share. Mm -hmm. And the other is an evolutionary challenge to our species. Can we survive as a species if everyone doesn't get a fair share? Mm. Mm. Maybe we can get away with it. We can get away with it. You can say, you know, we've got away with it. But you watch the, the sort of the gathering storm and you wonder, can we keep getting away with it? <laughs> right. If we hope to survive as a species, we need to work, be people who work towards justice. That would be really my my evolutionary yeah. challenge. Yeah, and I can give you give it to you as a biblical challenge too. So yeah, it's like right. you're by bi, you're bilingual. You can you can talk in the public square or in the specific church, and there's nothing wrong at all with having yeah. your own language, your own Christian language, or any other religion having its language. Mm -hmm. But every religion would have to say, okay, when I come into the public square, I must have a language that addresses the public square, or else I'm mm -hmm. not a world religion. I'm a private club. Right. I might yeah. be a huge private club and there's nothing wrong with private clubs. <laughs> you can have their own rituals and everything else. Of course not. Right. But then a private club does not speak in the public square, presumably that's what makes it private. So right. I, I would like people to be bilingual in that sense, to have their own mm -hmm. tradition, language that they know the validity of and are not embarrassed by the way, but also to have a language that speaks white more widely. Yeah. I, I appreciate, I really appreciate that as a pastor who, you know, I, I appreciate it feels permission giving to say, you don't have to use Christian language all the time to convey some of these ideas that we're trying to convey 
that really are universal or, you know, would we hope would be universal ideas uh, as we do seek a, a, a vision of an alternative world that's best, be, better for everyone. But yeah, because when Paul and Jesus and those first people were using them, they were making universal claims. Now we, obviously, you can laugh at them. Of course, you can always laugh at a universal claim. Um, you can also laugh at masks, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of things you can laugh at. You can laugh at vaccinations, too. Right. Um, but laughing at them doesn't make them go away. So yeah. they, they were making universal claims. That, that's what I got from the history of Jesus. When, when he was using language like, God's rule. That didn't sound weird to him because that was exactly the rule. You know, Augustus probably mightn't have used that language, but he was considered that you know, he was being treated like God. That was his title, God. Right. I don't know if, if he got up in the morning and said to himself, good morning, God. <laughs> but I'm quite clear that it would not be wise to go up to Augustus and say, you do know your imperial majesty, you're just a metaphor. Mm. I wouldn't try that. Mm -mm. I really wouldn't. He might, of course, I mean, you know, there's, so that would be really my, my challenge to watch how this biblical tradition presents us with a certain type of world and then ask does evolutionary challenge present us with a very similar world? Hmm. In both cases, a world of justice and equity where everyone gets a fair share hmm. or it will not work in the long run. Hmm. It may work for a while, of course. It always works for a while. Right. That's what every empire knows. Right. <laughs> That this is this has been such a, a rich conversation, Dom, and I appreciate the challenge implicit in us to people uh, who are striving to follow Jesus today in the 21st century. Um, I, I'm watching the clock just a little bit, but I wonder if you might just take a minute or two to tease your lecture on March 5th, which uh, you've titled The Vision of Easter, okay. just so our listeners have a little bit of an inkling of what you're thinking you're going to talk about that day. Okay. Uh what happened was in the year 2000, um, Mary Ann and Marcus Borg, Mary Ann was from Trinity Episcopal Cathedral. She was a canon there in uh, Portland, Oregon, not, not me, in Portland, Oregon. And her husband, Marcus Borg, was a professor, as you know, the biblical scholar. Mm -hmm. They said to Sarah and myself, we're thinking of starting tour, um, pilgrimage tours in Turkey on Paul, not uh, not." to Judea and Jesus, but would you like to come along as co-leaders? And we said, that mm -hmm. sounds like we get to go there free. And they said, that's the idea. And we <laughs> said, that sounds like a plan. So every, yeah. every year for the next 15 years, they pretty much went to Turkey in search of Paul. Now, that was the purpose. Mm -hmm. But in the process of that, we began to go, without any design on it particularly, into a lot of Eastern churches. By Eastern Church, I mean Eastern Christianity, not just Greek Orthodox. Right. And it spread out since we were going there every year. In any case, with our fare paid, we usually went a, a week ahead and went up to Russia or Egypt. We went all over. And we began to notice something. And it really was something we noticed. That when you went into, into say, a Cappadocian um, church built into the rock, the Mart, you could, you could 
recognize all around you the life of Jesus and you had no trouble with recognizing, of course, every single one of them crucifixed. And then you got to the resurrection. And instead of seeing Jesus coming majestically and triumphantly out of the tomb, as you would expect in the Western tradition, with the guards cowering there, but very much alone, you saw Jesus coming out, robed in majesty and taking Adam and Eve by the hand. Hmm. And the first time you saw it, well, you know, it's just different. And then right. it took a while. This is the Eastern vision of Easter. No, it's not the harrowing of hell or something to keep Jesus busy on Saturday night before he gets really get, comes out. And, this is a different whole theological iconographic vision of Easter. Hmm. Jesus takes the whole human race with him because Adam and Eve, of hmm. course, are not two guys. <laughs> they are the human race. Wow. So, it was a matter of, first of all, how do we handle this? It took us a while, honestly, to begin to realize and to go looking for it. Then we started looking for it. We'd go for, you know, to Romania or to somewhere like that. We never did get to the Ukraine. That was one of the ones on our list to get there to see. I mean, until we pretty much knew. Now, I wasn't interested in art history. That wasn't the purpose of what we were doing. Uh, though, of course, we had to look at art history. It was grounded in the Bible because the question we wanted to ask, basically, if Paul had been asked by the Corinthians after they'd read 1 Corinthians 15, we know what a crucifixion looks like, Paul. We've seen them. Could you draw us a picture of what the resurrection looked like? Mm. If we'd been there, Paul, and actually saw it, what would we have seen? Now, don't tell us about the results, uh, the women at the tomb or uh, doubting Thomas. We, we know all that. Their results, consequences, effects. What was the actual moment like? Would it have been drawn something like the Western tradition of Jesus arising alone mm -hmm. or the Eastern tradition of Jesus arising with all humanity? And of course, what was the difference? What did it mean? All, all the rest of that. So that was what we wanted to write the book about. Now, by the time we were there, after people read the book, I, a lot of people said, oh, you're, you're, you're quitting biblical studies, you're going into art history. And I wanted to scream. <laughs> and I figured it was my own fault because we were so involved in getting these images and getting permissions for them. Oh my gosh. You know, believe me, uh, <laughs> I got to know the, the infrastructure of European libraries. Oh, yeah. Every image that's in there that wasn't one taken by Sarah had to be permissioned. The Vatican Library, for example, will give you permission to use an image. Now, you get a nice big high-resolution image, even if you're only using it this, for about 160 euros. Oh, my gosh. It, yeah. I mean, the, the loveliest library in the world is the National Library of of. France and Paris, because they give you about 75% <laughs> discount. <laughs> <laughs> and most of those libraries send you the invoice first and weeks later comes the picture. Anyway, oh um, so, but no, what I wanted to do is really ground that in what does it mean? What does it mean to show Jesus raising the human race? Now, mm. not, not often the future. We're not talking about the future. This mm. was supposed to happen on Easter Sunday. Right. I mean, Theologically, how do you explain it? If, if it's saying that on the last day, Jesus will raise up the human race. Sure, we know that. That's classical Jewish theology, Pharisaic theology. But what does it mean that Jesus 
emptied the tombs, as it were, mm. on Easter Sunday. Poor old Augustine was asked that by a, a bishop around 500. Poor bishop would say, but, but, but if Jesus emptied the tombs once, there'll be probably nobody there again on the last day. And Augustine was tear, wanted to tear his hair out. And he said, oh, no, 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 all Jesus, the only people Jesus took out were a few prophets who were expecting him and recognized him. Wow. So he took them out. Excuse me, Jesus, Adam and Eve ain't two prophets. <laughs> wow. so, it's right. At the end, Augustine finally said, I wish nobody had ever talked about Jesus <laughs> descending into hell. I wish people had just said he went up to Abraham's bosom. <laughs> Yes, that'd be so much easier. It has huge theological questions. And especially if if you think that the the resurrection of the dead, that's anastasis, that's the title that's in all of these things, anastasis necron, the resurrection mm -hmm. of the dead, the great final judgment, then heaven and hell, they're supposed to happen at the end of time. Now, if they're saying that it's already started, with Jesus' resur mm -hmm. resurrection, not essential, resurrection, right. then maybe the final judgment has already begun. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm -hmm. it's running like a process. And maybe heaven and hell have already begun. So mm -hmm. maybe all of that, instead of some little scenario at the end of time mm -hmm. that we can all forget about, is an ongoing process in time. And we are either conducting heaven or hell here on earth. Mm. Mm. So the, the theological implications of that serene image on Easter Sunday morning that you'll see we were in, in churches, uh, not on Easter Sunday, but at least a week after in Belgrade, in the, the capital of Serbia, and into the cathedral, there was a long red carpet going in. And there was, you know, ropes along it. So that everyone came in, went up before the uh, anastasis and what uh, the um, iconostasis, bowed their head and kissed an image of Jesus with a hand to Adam and a hand to Eve, right there in front of it. So this is the Eastern vision. Now, how do you explain that theologically? I say, here's the question. How on Easter Sunday did Jesus raise the human race? Mm. Which, didn't, which did not exist yet. <laughs> I mean, Adam and Eve represent the past, the present, and the future in biblical. Right. That's a theological challenge that I've got. And then, again, I go back to my challenge. Which of those two visions, Jesus arising alone, or Jesus arising mm. with the human race, is in better continuity with the New Testament vision? Right. That's the question for us. So it's right. not simply, well, the East, you know, they have Greek and we have Latin and they have the this, we have it that way. No, the only thing where you really see this sort of a striking difference in the life of Jesus is on the most important thing of all, mm -hmm. the resurrection. Their mm -hmm. baptism of Jesus looks like ours. Entry into the Jerusalem looks like ours. You know, you have no trouble recognizing him. Crucifixion looks like ours. And then you come to the resurrection, the most important event in the life of Jesus. And it's radically different East and West. Mm. Now, it's fine, of course, if we're in the West and we never think of the East. We don't think of Eastern Christians. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's Eurocentric. But if we do, then we have to ask, 
what is the challenge? So that's really the the challenge of the book is to open that discussion, mm-hmm. not really to solve it, to open right. it. Yeah, and I, I hear you taking, you know, art history and using it to raise questions about biblical texts and historical Jesus and so forth. And I love, I, my, my curiosity is piqued. I love, you know, we'll say in church, we are Easter people, not meaning that we are people who will be raised at the end of time yes. or whatever that means, but that somehow Jesus's resurrection impacts uh, who we are and how we live today. And so it strikes me as, I, I don't know the content of your presentation in its entirety yet, but what you say will have bearing on how we live at our faith today and what it means to be followers of Christ today. On a cosmic, again, I'm going to say on a cosmic level, because the Mm. deep question I want to know is what does Jesus's resurrection have to do with human evolution? That's a Mm. big question because human evolution, Jesus is just a little Christian thing over here in the corner. Right. Well, if it makes a challenge, A human being, a single human being can make a challenge to the whole human race. They can. We know that. And you can you can then ignore the challenge, of course, or dilute it. You can do whatever you want. But the only honest thing we should never do is when somebody makes a universal challenge, mm. say they're just saying, you know, be nice to one another or something. Don't dilute it. It's much better to say, well, I hear what he's saying I won't, and I can't live up to it. Fine. I, I hear what he's saying. And I think it's wrong. Fine. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Just don't say he's, he was just a nice guy who patted little babies on the head and told little stories. And then, you know, those cruel Romans who like to crucify people every Friday. No, that's, that won't work. Yeah. If, if we're going to say anything about Jesus, let's try to do our best to say things that are true about Jesus and what he was trying to say. Yeah. yeah. I prefer to say, well, I know exactly what he's saying and I don't think I can live up to it. You know, you know um, if I, if I may just for a second, I read your, um, this, your short Jesus book that I think that you wrote for a more popular audience after the, the tome, the massive yeah. tome that you mentioned earlier, Jesus, a revolutionary biography. And the quote at the beginning of that always stuck with me where, you know, Jesus is talking to you and he says, you know, I've read your book. It's quite good. Are you ready to join me and live by my program? And you say, I don't think I'm quite, I don't have that much courage yet, Jesus, but my method was especially good, wasn't it? I've always, that quote has always resonated with me. And I think I the love, older I get. I love that. Honestly, I have no idea where it came from. It's like something that just bubbled up, you know, and I thought, oh, this is good. Yes. Oh, no, I loved it for the raw honesty and the vulnerability and just thinking, yeah. you know, uh, the older I get, I think the harder I, it is for me to sort of see what I think is the truth of Jesus's calling and then, you know, the the steps that I'm willing to take to live into that today for, you know, for better or for worse, at least it's honest. Yeah, that's that I would settle for that, especially at the moment when actually we got to the point where we're not even certain truth exists. It's all my truth and your truth and make up right. lies. So I, I, we have to be very careful, I think, to start with the, the, the first, the first uh, principle of, of Theologians, first tell no lies, like the doctor, mm. first do no damage, first do no harm. We should, our mm. first, should be, first tell no lies, tell the truth. And by say them, I don't think I can live up to it. I, I'm not certain I could. Yeah. I could, that's, but I do think it's a challenge 
to the world, not just to me. Yes. Yes. Well, Don, this, this has been such a rich conversation and you're appropriately going to be joining us in Lent, the season of repentance, <laughs> but you're, you're going to be offering us a vision of Easter as we prepare for the most sacred and holy week in, uh, in Christianity. And so I, I can't, uh, I can't say how excited I am as pastor to welcome you to this church. I know that a lot of folks will be joining us via Zoom as well. So thank you so much for this conversation. Podcast. Oh, go ahead. And it's a pleasure to be with you, by the way, in case you, but also the Zoom will be highly visual. We won't just be talking about images. We'd be looking at them. A visual theology. Yes, I think that would be wonderful. All of these pictures that you've collected over the years, we can't wait to see them. So, and um, thrilled to to welcome you. Uh, So grateful for you doing this, taking time to do this podcast with me. Podcast listeners, if you're still with us, we're grateful for your time as well. You can find all of book, all of Dom's books on Amazon or other major booksellers, you're going to have to look for John Dominic Crossan, all three names, right? <laughs> and they will all pop up. I have several of them. I've read them and they're fantastic and continue to shape my own understanding of Jesus and the Bible uh, in rich ways. And so Dom, again, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for your time and we'll look forward to seeing you very soon. All right. Thank you, Mark. All right. Take care.